Imagine an Australian story interview in my house in Port Hedland and it was the middle of summer and the aircon had to be off, the fridges had to be off and they had a big light on me. And I was like... The Is that Australian story or back roads? Australian story. What for? Which and I've been on back roads. Yeah. I'm like pretty famous. You're listening to the Central Station Podcast where we bring you true stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. Welcome back to the Central Station Podcast. We're back with big plans for 2020 and we want to hear from you about who you want to hear from. You can send us a message on Instagram, Facebook, or through our website. You'll notice a change to our podcast artwork too. That's because the legends at Pioneer Water Tanks have come on board as a sponsor of this podcast series. For over 30 years, this Australian-owned and operated company have been supplying homes, farms, stations and businesses all around Australia with water storage solutions. I've actually been to their factory in Perth where they use only Australian-made Blue Scope Colour Bond and Zincaloom Steel in their tank walls. And they're the only tank company in Australia who doesn't import tank liner fabric to make their tank liners. That's pretty cool. Now, on to today's episode. In this episode, I'm sitting down with Pip Grossmith. And we were actually sitting down on her living room floor for this one, even though Pip was about a week out from giving birth. As the daughter of a coastal sciences professor who grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney... Working with pastoralists in the rangelands of Western Australia is the last place anyone expected Pip to end up, including yourself. But with a have-a-go attitude and unparalleled authenticity in everything she does, it's no surprise that Pip has become a well-known character in the Pilbara. In this episode, we talk about Pip's unconventional journey into the pastoral industry and how you just never know where life will take you. Today's episode is sponsored by Pioneer Water Tanks. Designed for Australia's harsh and demanding conditions, Pioneer water tanks are manufactured using strong and durable, fully recyclable Australian zinc alum or Calibon steel. Their range of tanks are available from 12,000 to 250,000 litres in the standard range or can be custom built up to 2.6 million litres. To protect your valuable water assets and access it where and when you need it, insist on Pioneer Water Tanks, available Australia-wide. Thanks for coming on the podcast, Pip. Thanks for having me, Steph. She's dragged me kicking and screaming, everybody. <laughs> I was just about to say that, like, you look so unexcited. Well, this is what happens when you decide to start a podcast. You're like, uh, okay, I need people to talk to. Friend circle. First targets. Yeah. If people, if Steph wants to stay at your house, say no. (laughs) And if she rocks up with a little Stanley toolbox. (laughs) Don't let her in the door. It's not got tools in it. It's got a microphone. (laughs) All right. So for people, basically, I guess anyone that's not in the Pilbara and, you know, just in the Kimberley that probably don't know who you are, who are you and where are you from originally? Let's start right at the beginning. Right at the beginning. Well, uh, I am Pip Grossmith, previously Pip Short. Um, I grew up on the northern beaches of Sydney. I like to tell people it was Summer Bay, basically, the Insular Peninsula. Um, I was fairly lucky to get out of there. But I had I, I was lucky that my dad is a um, a professor coastal in coastal sciences, so he took us all over Australia, um, visiting every single beach. He's been to every beach in Australia, 11,761 of them. No way. How do you... (sighs) He's a scientist, so he knows. Yeah. Wow. Um, Yeah. So we got to experience a lot of Australia that way. And when we weren't getting dragged to the beach, mum was taking us to her friend's farm, which was in Young, southwest New South Wales. So... I had always had a love of the kind of country and farming and agriculture and we did pony club out there and would ride up the snowy mountains chasing brumbies every Easter and things. So, yeah, I kind of got the best of both worlds at least. So that sounds pretty amazing. When you have those kind of experiences growing up, how does that impact like the trajectory? Like what? how does that impact what steps you took next as you grow up and decide what to do as an adult? Well, I guess for me, it impacted me quite a lot. I mean, my brother and sister, probably not so much. They've gone into IT and teaching, but 
I certainly followed my parents. Um, Dad was actually mum's lecturer when she went to uni. <gasps> Scandal. Scandal. Yeah, yeah. He was her honours super. He was a yeah her honours supervisor um, when they started dating, and. Dad taught me at uni as well. So I kind of followed in their footprints, not footpath, um, and did an environmental science degree at Sydney University. So, so yeah, I'd say growing up that way certainly impacted my life and my values. Um, yeah, so I went off to uni, figured I may as well get a degree. What did you, when you picked that degree, what did you think you were going to do with it or what did you want to do? Like, why did you pick that one? To be honest, I had no idea. So I um, I was telling you this before, but I, I got into a land and water science degree, which was more ag-based and, and in the ag department. And I really liked the sound of the degree, but, you know, I was a young kid who grew up in Sydney. And when you are a young kid that grew up in Sydney, generally you don't think you'll ever leave Sydney. You know, you might like the idea of farming and you know, maybe you might marry a farmer or something, but you can't see how you as a young woman are going to end up in that career path. So I kind of chickened out and I just did a straight science degree. Um, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I just knew, I basically just looked at the courses and was like, what subjects interest me? And I would just do that, really. So I did a lot of geography, some river stuff, some coastal stuff. I just did whatever, to get the degree. And then I went traveling for a year or so. Oh, where did did you go? Uh, You know, did the whole big 13 countries, went across the world, drank a lot. Sorry, mum. You know. (laughs) I didn't know this about you. Were you working or just traveling? uh, I worked in London for three months. I got the two-year visa, but to be honest, it wasn't my scene. So I was there for a couple of months working. Um, went over to Morocco with some girlfriends, went to Japan, then did the bus about all through Europe, ended up in Hawaii for the triple crown surf event with some friends, obviously growing up on the beaches, we knew a lot of surfers. They're like two, six foot tall Swedish supermodels. And I'd just been traveling through Europe for eight months, got the Heathrow injection. It's great for the (laughs) self-esteem. And then, yeah, I came back to Sydney, um, 2008, global financial crisis, graduate student, and was trying to get a job. And it was just crazy. Like, it was so hard to get anything. Um, One job interview I remember going for, my supervisor from the job that I was doing just kind of part-time, and she was on my resume as my reference. She was going for the same job as me. So it's like soul-destroying. Um, and that's kind of how I ended up over here. There was a job going with a local not-for-profit group called Care for Headland. They've got a turtle monitoring program. They do waste, litter, sustainability initiatives, um, and a garden club. And yeah, they offered me a position. So over I came. Can you explain to the listeners where here is, where we are right now? We are in Port Headland. Came on a six-month contract, April 2012, and I'm still here Seven and a half years later. So northwest coast, more northern, kind of in the middle of the north coast of Western Australia. Yeah. Just yeah, on well. the eastern edge of the Pilbara region. Yep. Yep. That's where we are, 600k south of Broome. What, 1700k north of Perth or something? About that, I think some yeah. of my Sydney friends still think I live in Perth. <laughs> it's close <laughs> enough, right? 1700k, you know, <laughs> give or take. Um, so... You came over for a turtle project, which for anybody listening to this podcast is going to go, what the hell do turtles have to do with cattle stations? But Mm. we'll get there eventually. But tell me, yeah, turtles. Yeah, well, I can't. Yeah, so the initial position was the garden club for six months. And then... What's a garden club? Sorry. So they have, you know, they work with the schools and they do like a community. There's a community garden. Oh, yeah, so actually gardening. Yeah. So fruit, like um, veggie gardening mostly. Yeah. Yeah, so it was just kind of faking that. Um, so we do like how to set up a garden. We did worm farms. We did all sorts of different things. Even though you didn't... Tomato giveaways. Even though you didn't know what you wanted to do when you left uni or when you went into your degree, sorry, did you ever feel like, oh, God, I've ended up, A, in Port Hedland and, B, I'm doing gardening? Like, did you ever have moments where you doubted and you were like, what am I doing? 
I mean, probably, but not, not really. It's, it's, it's actually funny looking back. Like I've, I've always loved food. I've always been really interested in food. I've, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a chef. I've always been really interested in the environment. Um, you know, people would call me a greenie. I'm not necessarily sure. Well, I mean, probably, but you know, I've always been really interested and aware of the environment, environmental impacts. And I've also really loved and respected farming. Um, and so it's funny to see how these things have kind of shaped my life and kind of where I am now, because people often don't look at those things as being interrelated. Um, I think it's getting that way a bit more now with this whole regenerative farming and healthy food and actually understanding production systems and how your food is made. Um, but to me, they kind of all work perfectly together, like looking after the environment, producing healthy animals and producing healthy food. So I guess I've never really reflected back on this, but I mean, the garden club was kind of part of that, really. I mean, it was grassroots. It was grassroots, and it's about food production, and it's about sustainability and and healthy living. So, I mean, and it was a it was a fun job. Like it was working with the community. Like every day was different. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it was a good it was a good first gig, you know. Yeah. Like you're in a town a million miles from nowhere, so like there's not a lot of pressure. If you mess things up, <laughs> no one knows who you are. Um, yeah, and it was good fun. We got to go to the schools and, yeah, just do different things. And from that, you, they put you on to turtles? Yeah, so then they're like, hey, do you want to stay and do the turtle program? And I was like, yeah, cool. I mean, I'd never studied biology. I'm not really interested in that kind of thing. And I find myself running this turtle program and interviewing these incredibly <laughs> – like experienced biologists, people who've done, you know, all these different programs. And here I am like the little boss lady. Um, turns out turtle monitoring pretty easy. Like just read the tracks, determine whether it's a nest or not. Um, yeah, it's pretty simple stuff to be honest with you guys. Like if you ever want to get into it. <laughs> There's got to be somebody listening it's, to this that has like done a whole biology degree yeah. and is like trying and trying and trying to get a job in like the turtle industry and hasn't oh. got there yet. And they're going to listen to this and be yeah, like, Yeah, they'll what? hate me. Incredibly hard to get a job in because it's so romantic and everybody loves the idea of it. And if you're doing the more scientific stuff where you're doing the tag and release, there's certainly more to it. But just the basic monitoring stuff is, is pretty easy. But I mean, that was so cool. I didn't know anything about turtles. Um, Port Hedland is the only urban rookery in the world. Yeah, only urban what, sorry? Rookery, which is uh, a place where, tur- like a beach where turtles lay their nests. Oh, yeah. See, I didn't even know we had turtles here. We have turtles here, flatback turtles. Um, they're obviously dodging the, the biggest bulk export port in the world. Um, and the tides are so huge here. In a lot of places in Queensland, turtles just come at, say, midnight every night to go out there in the middle of the night our ones come on the high tide so in peak season if there's a high tide at five o'clock in the afternoon you can come and see the turtles start coming up onto the beach from three three o'clock in the afternoon so it's cool yeah it's really it was really cool being involved in that so you move clear across the country work in a gardening club and work with turtles but today you're a big part of our pastoral industry up here how do you make the the transition from that from home and away, growing <laughs> up at basically home and away, summer bay, to guard like you know to veggie gardens, to turtles, to you know ca- cattle stations. Fake it till you make it, people. <laughs> um, well, when I first got up here, Kevin Headland were in an office with my three wise uncles, as I like to call them, uh, Mike and Bob from Greening Australia, and Tim from Rangelands NRM. Um, and so they took me under their wing and I told them how I'd always wanted to go mustering on a cattle station and I loved horses and, you know, I'd always ridden and how cool would that be? And they were all like, you have to meet Annabelle Coppin. And I was like, okay, okay. So how do I do that? (laughs) And I think I met her at the Marble Bar races that year and was just like so intimidated by this woman who was, you know, a year older than me and running a cattle station and, you know, flew a helicopter and just did all this amazing stuff. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm just like a city chick. (laughs) Um, But through work, um, I got to meet her more. So um, 
rangelands obviously do a lot of sustainable pastoralism work and greening Australia in that space as well. So I had a heap of in-town volunteers who were really keen to go out to pastoral stations and help out. And they obviously had the connections to the pastoral stations and knowledge on seed collecting and weed control and rehydration stuff. So it kind of worked really well. We all got together and would go out and do weekend trips out to the station. So we did um, some mangrove rehabilitation work on DeGray over a number of years. Um, We did some weed control Always a dangerous game with volunteers. <laughs> we did some seed collecting. Um, and, yeah, just a bunch of other trips over over a year or two. Um, and through that time I got to know Annabelle really well um, and I got to go mustering a couple of times over the last few years. And, yeah, I got to know the Greening Australia and Rangelands guys really well. And then eventually um, Greening Australia offered me a position with them as their – as their Pilbara manager. And so then I got to kind of move into that space a little bit more. Um, And I did, I think, two and a half years with Greening Australia. And then I've just finished working for KPCA, the Kimberley Pilbara Cattlemen's Association. So I worked with them for two years and obviously did a lot more work with the pastoral industry. What was it like the first time you went out to a cattle station? Did you have any... um conceptions of what it would be like and then how did that actually compare in reality um I don't know to be honest I mean I remember the first time the most impactful time was probably the first time I drove out by myself and I just bought myself a 1992 Toyota Troopie and I set off with me and my dog and it was the first time I was going to visit Annabelle as a a friend like on a personal trip and Cyclone Rusty had just dropped 400 mil on the Pilbara and I was leaving after work and I drove out. I left a bit too late. I left about three or four. And right as I got to the the Yarry Access Road, which is 17K, yeah. I had to go the, the Pardue way because the Degray was totally flooded. And um, I call Annabelle and she's like, okay, you've got 17K to get in. Do not get bogged. The road's too wet. We won't be able to come and get you till the morning. Walk all the rivers. Like, there weren't rivers. Like, the little floodways yeah. were running. Walk all of them before you drive across and, like, you'll be fine. Oh, we've just had another 70 mil drop on the house. It's like, great. And I'm like, okay, you are not prepared for this Sydney chick. Like, what are you doing? Like, what, you're going to die? And there was this massive thunderstorm and lightning. Anyway, so I get to the first river, walk across it, lose my thong. Oh, God, okay, seems all right. Um, Get through the three little rivers, and then the last bit, the whole road is underwater. And I'm like, oh, my God, it's like lightning. My dog is barking at the cows. She's never seen a cow before. She's going nuts. The lights on my troopie were so bad. And I remember ringing my mum and dad, and I was like, hey, two questions. One, if I get bogged in my car and have to sleep in it and it gets struck by lightning, will I die? <laughs> like, where are you? I'm like, not important. I just need to know if I'll die or not. <laughs> and, and then two, if I'm really worried about getting bogged, should I just be in low range the whole time and like just go up to fifth low range? Or should I be in like just normal four wheel drive and then like have low range in reverse? And by this stage, my mom is like freaking out. Like, what are you doing? Like, nothing, nothing, nothing. Anyway, I can't even remember the answers to the questions, but I made it. Let's just say that. I made it out to Yari, and I just thought, like, I was the coolest person in the world. Like, I'd done it, you know? Is and that- I realised that, like, I'd, all I'd done is driven up her driveway. <laughs> and like, the these most, people like- are so much tougher and more accomplished than me, like. But probably the most stressful 17 kilometres of your life. <laughs> yeah. Definitely. <laughs> Which for like some uh, people listening, it's just like, you know, driving to the shops or driving to the train I station, know. driving to the beach. <laughs> uh, How long did it take you? very accomplished by the time I got yeah. in there. And I think I had quite a few beers. <laughs> <laughs> While well, you are on the track. No, no. Once I, oh, once you got there. <laughs> once I arrived to laugh. Oh my God. I totally would have freaked out doing something like that. Is that yeah. the turn off? Were you on the Boreline Road? Yeah, I'd been Is on that the where you turn off road. at like the tires? Like kind yeah, of down yeah, the... Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. So it's not the way where you're coming across the river. Yeah. Um, look, it just kind of really put into like contrast for me. Like, you know, these people live out here. It's remote. 
it's rough. Like they can do so much stuff, you know, like these people are so practical, so handy, capable, capable. Yeah. yeah. And I just was like, oh my God, you just, you know, you might've gone to uni and you might have survived this long, but really you don't have a lot of skills out here, but I felt pretty chuffed to have made it. Did you find that each time you did something like that though, where you went into something thinking, I can't do this or I don't know how to do this. And then you got to the other, you got through the other side of it that you felt like you were becoming more capable. Like it's not necessarily something they were all born with, but they had to learn as well. Yeah, for sure. But I think you're always going to be behind the eight ball, you know, like, yeah, I still feel that way. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. I still feel like I'm probably like 1% of Annabelle Coppin. <laughs> and it was a hard-earned 1%. <laughs> all of it but earned on that 17-kilometer We all have different strengths and we all yeah. bring different things. So, nah, it's it's been good. Ag Workforce specialises in recruiting for agricultural jobs, including farm work, station work and agribusiness across Australia. View current jobs Advertise a position or register as a job seeker at agworkforce.com.au. Tell me a bit more about the decision to work for Greening Australia. And I guess that was your first, like, it was like a commitment step into the pastoral industry, like Mm. very different space to working for Care for Headland. Yeah, I guess, um, like I said, I'd I'd always had an interest in kind of farming and I guess now pastoralism. Um, and so, you know, I'd, I'd kind of toyed with the idea of doing that degree and I hadn't. And, and now it was just like this perfect opportunity was opening up to, to work in that space and understand that space a bit better. And I guess have more of an impact, you know, instead of just working in a really little small town, it was, it was getting out, seeing more of the Pilbara and, um, and being able to help pastoralists achieve their kind of, NRM, sustainability, whatever you want to call that word, but in, but achieve their goals there. So what sort of things did you do with Greening Australia? Because even though I have known you for however many years, I still don't really know what they do. All I know <laughs> is that they are the chosen, um, I guess, charity or not charity, but we're on the fundraising from the 2020 Triple yeah, J Hottest 100. Good, good on them. Yeah. So Triple um, J is going to support Greening Australia. And that's talking about when they keep saying that on the radio, it's about planting X amount of trees, native trees in yeah. Australia by, you know, whatever date. Greeny Australia are a fantastic organisation Australia-wide. Um, they are a bit different in the Pilbara. So traditionally they do more broad-scale restoration work, um, particularly down in the wheat belt where you've got, I think something like 98% of the native vegetation has been removed from the wheat belt. So they um, do a lot of environmental plantings but also production plantings down in that region so they call it like revegetation by stealth they'll go into farms and put in fodder belts so they're putting in trees that can be grazed by sheep and cattle but also have environmental values um in the pilbara they they kind of came here with a bhp partnership um and so they they were in the community space a lot and then kind of went a bit more into the pastoral. So they work they work a lot with ranger groups, um, with local communities and with pastoralists. And it's just they kind of try and understand what their needs are. So when when I worked with them, I was involved with the Yandiara Ranger Program. Um, and I was also involved with doing re so rehydration and reseeding work across a couple of properties in the Pilbara. So, you know, the big scalded hard pan areas you see around the Pilbara where it's lost all the vegetation and it's basically formed a hard crust. It's like concrete and you could get as much rain as you wanted on that kind of system, but nothing grows because the seeds can't penetrate. So we would work with people like Daryl Hill or... Cole Stanton, Richard Marler, look at doing Ezra and plans. Um, we even had Peter Andrews came over. He's an interesting fellow. <laughs> um, and, yeah, so so spreading water back across country, opening up the country so that the seeds can penetrate, the water can get in and they can germinate. But also we were working with um, with native seed collection and actually trying to 
they have this um, prototype native grass seeder that they use a lot down in the wheat belt that they bought up here for a couple of projects. So we're actually um, replanting native seeds too, which unfortunately is incredibly expensive. We had an order in with a seed collector in the region and it's about a $60,000 order, I think, but um, there were just no seeds, you know, like one, you can't even get the seeds and two, even if you can, they're so expensive. So, I mean, it's, it's something that would be nice. I mean, I think actually this current government is, is looking into native seed production on some of the pivot systems um, that could bring down that cost. Um, But yeah, so that's the kind of, that's the kind of work we were doing really. So when you, I guess we keep talking about regenerating the rangelands and and restoration. Can you just take us a step back as to how they got that way in the first place? Mm. Yeah, I mean, the common common, um, thing that I've heard, which makes a lot of sense, is obviously back when pastoralism first started, it wasn't a how many cattle can you have a maximum number. It was a minimum number. So you had to be running a minimum number of sheep on your station to be able to, to you know, be a pastoralist and be there. Um, sheep have a smaller mouth and can bite lower to the ground of a plant um, and they can do a lot more damage. So a lot of the damage that you see these days is called historical degradation from overgrazing from the sheep. So a lot of the pastoralists have come onto leases um, and they've kind of inherited this historical degradation. Um, they're still running successful businesses, but, you know, they a lot of them would like to improve improve their leases essentially and, and understand how, how they can do that. It just blows my mind that the way it was set up was that you had to have a minimum number of mm-hmm. animals grazing, yeah. whereas today it's almost the other way around where we well, we want you to run the, the minimum. You'd rather run as, as less as possible and get more out of the individual animal yeah. and to yeah to really minimise your impact on the landscape and have the animals working with the landscape to, yeah. to help it function, not to just use it like it was back then. Yeah, well, I mean, that's just how it was back then, wasn't it? Yeah, we, I guess we rode on the sheep's back, back. and... And unfortunately, a lot of areas across Australia got got massively degraded. And because we're an arid environment here, um, some people use the term brittle, it takes a lot to rehabilitate. So in these kind of desert areas or arid areas, um, just rainfall often won't kickstart regeneration. Like I said, the country might be scalded. It's got hard crust over the top and... You can get rain on it, but it, it won't necessarily mean that anything will grow there. You actually need to go in with mechanical intervention, and that can be animal impact or it can be something like a grader or a ripper. Yeah. I guess at the end of the day, people were doing the best with the knowledge they had at that time, but... Mm, for sure. It's just like... And a lot of these people, like I said, I mean, some of them have been on it for generations and generations, and they've inherited it from their families. Other people have just moved here and they've inherited it from, you know, the previous owner or, or the owner, you know, from 50 years ago. So you've mentioned rehydration a couple of times. Um, what actually is that? What does it mean in terms of a pastoral landscape or a cattle station? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I, guess I should probably take a step back because there's, there's kind of rehydration and then guess regeneration and um rehydration would be part of regenerating the rangelands really um so rehydration specifically is just spreading the flow of water across the landscape so you might have a cattle pad that was cutting or cattle pad or a road often that was where you would usually get a sheet flow of water across the whole landscape and then you get a little cattle pad or a road or something and it channels that water and then it erodes that little area and it basically drains the whole system so instead of water flowing in a big sheet across a whole you know the Pilbara is so flat and it's so vast and you imagine how far water can spread across that big flat vast area so then you get a little cut, little cattle pad, little road, and it's channeling it down. So you've actually drained all that water that was flowing out across your grasslands down into an erosion gully 
you might create a new river system or you might erode your river system more and um, it essentially drains the landscape. So rehydration is stopping that. So so basically way back when, before we'd intervened in the landscape, the rain used to fall and spread out across the landscape and then at some point through, whether it's through livestock or mechanical means, the basically the flow of water in certain areas has been... Um, interrupted Mm. and the water becomes redirected into other areas which basically starves or or creates little droughts in certain areas yeah and so this rehydration is about through mechanical means is it often not always yeah 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 so i mean there's always going to be erosion i mean that's how the grand canyon formed there's always erosion but it's it's human induced or, or animal induced. Um, I want to say exacerbated, but that's probably not the word. But you know, like it's when we have impacted on the environment and made it a lot worse. Correct. Mm-hmm. And to rehydrate the landscape, you can do a range of things. So um, it is often getting the grader out, flattening the area restoring the natural flow in other areas um down at Wallene station they've done a lot with the they um they have like steel mesh rolls across river systems and stuff that catch debris and it's a it's a bit of a gentler form so it might is that like making a bit of a natural dam yeah kind of like making a natural dam so stuff can flow through it but twigs and leaf litter and seeds and everything can get trapped in this kind of mesh roll as well. Um, it slows the water, but doesn't stop the water. Stuff gets caught in it. And then that obviously creates a seed bank and a nice little micro environment where those plants can hopefully germinate and it will turn into a living barrier. Uh, okay. Yep. Yeah. So if you've just done it with a grader, you know, you've got a so- your soil profile that's raised that does often come with its own native recruitment and you do you can see photos where there's been amazing germination and recruitment after the wet season along there um but yeah there there are various ways that you can do that and one of i think i mentioned it before an ezrin plan it's an ecologically sustainable rangelands management plan um and there's a guy doing them called richard marva from contour environmental and he is amazing he's really good at reading the landscape and understanding what technique will work best so when I say I you know help pastoralists with these things I'm not actually that expert that's doing it I'm the one that's linking them up with these experts so Richard Marva's one who is really good at writing these plans and helping pastoralists understand the issues on their station and then you've got the more practical guys like the old grader drivers like Cole Stanton and Daryl Hill who can come and show you how to use the bulldozer, how to use the grader, how to create roads that don't cause erosion in the first place, how to fix roads that are causing erosion, um, all sorts of things like where to put your fence lines, you know. So that actually just reminds me that in 2019 um, the rangelands WA group put out a book called Managing Outback Roads, Let It Go, mm-hmm. Let It Flow. Yep. Water your landscapes, not your roads, there you which go. Um, I think Cole Stanton was a part of. Yep, yep. he's on there. Yeah, um, there's a heap of guys that contributed to that book. Here we go. Hugh Pringle, Pringle. Daryl Hill, Paul Theakston, Colin Stanton, and Russell Grant. And that book is actually available free online. Yeah, it's a great book. And Cole Stanton also has a one-hour-long um, video on YouTube that South – and it's – it's a um, DVD as well, so KPCA or Rangelands might still have copies, um, but if you didn't get given a copy, it is available on YouTube, and if you look up um, Cole Stanton, Water Your Landscape, Not Your Roads, it's it goes through creating woe boys, how to how to, yeah, just how to grade the roads, how to do flat bottom drains, not spoon drains. He's got some swear words, Cole Stan. He's quite a character, actually. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk about because while we're talking in the pastoral space here, a big part of um, this rehydrating the landscape, while pastoralists manage such huge tracts of land, there's a huge, I feel, part of this that falls back onto main roads because it's the drains that are that are 
like pastures aren't the only ones making roads and drains. Like, oh, there's, it's you mining. Know, it's 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 all the mining infrastructure. Yeah. It's the local governments who do some of the local roads. Like it's yeah, and it's so, a big complicated space. Yeah. And, and I don't think kind there's going to be any quick wins in there. It's certainly one that's I think acknowledged. Yeah. Um, but you know, you've got public safety. You've got the cost of building the infrastructure and the insurances and the and the engineers who say this is how you have to build that bridge and and there's a lot of competing interests there unfortunately but but yeah it does impact heavily yeah on pastoral stations can you t- um, tell me unfortunately tell our listeners a bit about um the main thing that I kind of took away from the thing that I always think of now when I'm driving down the road so coal hates he said one of the i think one of his swear words is v drain so it's yep. when you're driving yep. down a stretch of highway and you see like they the shoot little water yeah you see like <laughs> the little um like drains going off to the left and the right and um and i like i always used to think they were roads but like you can see that they don't go on very far and then i was like oh they're just i, I never like this was years ago i had no idea what they were and so generally when you see them they're kind of in the shape of a v yeah like so they go out straight but like it's a little funnel yeah i guess um, and that's one of his swear words, V drains. He really doesn't like them. He doesn't like them because they shoot the water because of that V. They yeah. obviously concentrate it down the bottom and yeah. they speed it up. And what can happen less so on a on a big main road um, that's got bitumen on it, but it still certainly can happen, but more on the tracks is it, it shoots the water. But So the water's going one way, but the erosion actually comes back up towards the road. So the water's going away from the road but the erosion eats up kind of eats uphill and how does that work interview coal (laughs) (laughs) okay yeah we'll save that one for a coal interview but that's the takeaway message is that Um, so it's about where the water drops so where it changes down in yeah yep Mm -hmm. that is where the erosion happens and and that obviously keeps coming backwards yeah so it's dropped off the road into the drain and and it just keeps coming back up and yeah. <laughs> Cole can probably explain this better. Anyway, point is, it can it can take away your road. Yeah. So Cole um, likes flat bottom drains because it doesn't shoot and funnel the water. It spreads the water back out across the landscape. Yes. And the other thing I always look at now is when you're driving down a dirt road and you see the little, I don't know what you call them, like little mounds of dirt on either side where somebody's mm. graded and just push the dirt up. The windrows. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And so... And about how that so creates a channel, essentially. Yeah, and also starves the landscape on one side or the other of water. Yeah. So the water will fall on one side, run, and then just hit this kind of man-made mm. barrier. And then so that it I, – I don't know, like, why do people have those? Is that just a byproduct it, of grading the road? Or are they not actually trying to stop water getting on the no, road? No, they're not trying to stop water. I think it's just a byproduct. I mean, you'd need to speak to a grader. But my understanding is it's just a byproduct of grading. It's how people yeah. are taught. You know, you you, you flatten the road and you generally have a bit left on the end. So, I, well, it's like if you've got flour and you're, you know, if you put some flour on a, on a yeah. um, chopping board and you just kind of flatten it or whatever, you're going to have little bits on the edges, like little raised bits. Yeah. Steph and I would just like to apologize to all the men who drive graders and yeah. understand this a lot better than us and are just like shaking their heads at us. So apologies, <laughs> apologies. but yes, this is our understanding. And Carl just says you grade to daylight. So you just keep spreading that so that it doesn't form a barrier. Yes. And on the upside, <laughs> we are trying to bring important topics like this to the broader community and we will get some experts on the podcast. And we are saying that there are some very amazing people out there who are bloody good at what they do. And um at the, and at the end of the day, like I said earlier with the with the sheep grazing, people are doing the best they know how with the knowledge they have at the time mm. they're doing it. And so you, sure. you don't know what you don't know and until you have somebody like Cole come along you know i never would have looked at a drain and been like oh look at the waters yeah no like you know and you don't know what you don't know and until you have the opportunity to meet those people and learn those things you know everyone's just doing the best they can and and i think for most people probably let's be honest not everybody but most people that is their goal is to um you know leave the landscape in a better condition than what they found it so yeah and i mean an amazing example of that one of the stations i was on with cole um last year was they had they had a big erosion issue on their station and they'd had the station for 20 years and they'd been trying to fix this erosion 
for 20 years. Every year they'd do a little bit on it, but they didn't understand the erosion. They didn't understand what was causing it, why it was happening and how to fix it. So what people often do is they see a big hole or they see an erosion gully and they want to put stuff in it, right? Okay, we've got to stop that. So sometimes people put old cars in it. Sometimes people will try, you know, greater work to kind of put a put a bank around it or, or fill it in. And Cole explains it as trying to fill up a bathtub without the plug in there. So they're trying to do all these things, but they haven't put the plug in. They haven't understood how this erosion is forming and and what's actually going to fix it and we had coal on this station for one day and it was so amazing to see the station owners and managers there get it and they were like oh my gosh you know I wish we had known this like for 20 years we've been trying to fix this issue and now we can finally see what's causing it and, and kind of understand how to do it now yeah so it's still going to be a long road to recovery for that station but it was so nice to be able to have someone there who could, I mean, I think they actually said themselves, it's like someone had opened, opened their eyes. I suppose that, though, that story really speaks to the fact that pastoralists have to be, well, not have to be, but are expected to be experts or be knowledgeable in so many different areas. Like, how can you possibly be, expect to understand the mechanics of erosion and and everything in that area but then livestock management ohs you know paying superannuation doing your payroll you know mechanics all the different pieces of mechanics on the station um and, and everything like, just there's so many things yeah. they have to be able to like how can you i mean maybe let's say usually if you're say like a hairdresser or a graphic designer or whatever you're good at like one thing and you've got even you know within graphic design there's different programs or whatever you kind of have your but you don't have to like I it just it always it never ceases to do my head in like how much a pastoralist has to know about you know you've got to be like breeding genetics nutrition mm. yeah um the amount of respect I have for pastoralists is huge the more I understand about the pastoral industry and the people who work in it I just like, honestly, it makes me tear up. I just think they're the most incredible people. It's such a harsh landscape just to start with. You're so remote. Um, The weather is so extreme up here. You're covering such huge distances just as a starting point. And then you have all of those things that you said, you know, a lot of them know a lot about their cattle. Most of them love their cattle. A lot of them love their country and their landscape. Um, but, but understanding each of those things to the level that they need to, to be able to run a successful business, managing the country, managing the cattle, managing the staff and the relationships between the staff and, and you know, and the, and the safety aspects of managing these kids that have come from Sydney and, and all over Australia, all over the world, you know, in these vast landscapes. Then the taxes and the contracts and... You know, the the crazy logistics of selling your cattle and, you know, the live export issues. And it's just, yeah, these guys um, are incredibly skilled people, which is why I'm so in awe of all of them. Um, and, yeah, I mean, they can't know everything. So, so that's what I guess my role has been and your role has been, has been to, to go out and understand what their issues are, what they're interested in, what they're struggling with, and do our best to connect them with those people who can help them develop um, projects for funding. So, you know, whether they're NRM projects or working with people like MLA um, to get them funding support, to trial different things. I mean, (laughs) even like the stuff that's being trialed, like virtual fencing and satellite tagging. I mean, there's amazing things on the periphery, but even that requires new skills. Even, um, you know, the digital individual herd recording systems is is a great place for industry to be. But, but again, that's a new skill that they're going to have to learn on top of all the ones that they already have, getting their head around new computer systems and different technologies and stuff. And, um, yeah, that's that's kind of what what I had been doing up until 
I was about to drop my own calf, um, yeah. which I would like to make a <laughs> in note. Season carving, woo! Yeah, and we did we did an episode on uh, I think it's episode seven was on the video I made last year about um, which featured all humans, but it was about cows and carving. And we spoke about that you want you know your cows to carve during a certain time of year. And I would just like to note that Pip, you are due in a, towards the end of January. Yep, perfect wet season drop. Yep. Like just, I took your advice, Steph. Yes, took you got my supplements at the right time. Oh. You know, let the bull in at the right time. <laughs> Controlled mating. <laughs> Controlled mating one hundred and one. <laughs> and your calf is very much in season. So well done. And you are <laughs> thank fir- you, thank first you. calf heifer. We have set that heifer yeah, up. Yep. Correct for life. A, p- a pretty old one, but yeah, <laughs> first calf. Yeah, we would have been I'm not sure truck. you would have wanted me in your herd. I've been freeloading for quite a few years. <laughs> oh, it's funny because it's true. Um, <laughs> if if we were cows. Yeah, yeah, I would have been culled about a decade ago. Yeah. Anyway. That's all right. Think Water Broma, your local water experts for irrigation projects big and small. Their fully stocked retail store sells the latest irrigation products, including fittings, pipe, filtration and solar supplies. Covering the Kimberley and Pilbara regions of Western Australia, their knowledgeable and passionate teams are experts in the design and implementation of the most water-efficient irrigation and water management programs across all sectors. So I just want to—I want to jump back to what you were just saying, then. Basically, as a little profession of love for the pastures, oh. which you know we all feel like we all own awe of them, um, even if they won't acknowledge it. You know, <laughs> oh, it's just what I do. You know, whatever. Um, and I suppose through that and through the work you've done and, and same with me, like the pastoral community becomes your social circle and, and your actual immediate community. It's not just a work thing. I find it hard almost to imagine like working in another job where you just go and you work with a community and then you go back to your own community, which is, I don't know how many people are because that's just, I feel like how everything outside agriculture is. Whereas I feel like inside ag, you commute, like you work and you're, social personal community are one and the same and so you've become a big part of the social community up here hospitality industry yeah yeah. (laughs) which i also spend a lot of time yeah yeah that's true that's true because then you work all the same shifts and stuff um but yeah they they become like your your tribe i suppose like i like i don't really have that many people in northern wa that are in my social circle that are not connected to the pastoral industry and i think that's the same for you yeah um, our baby shower so a lot of our town friends were like there's a lot of um you know country looking people here. <laughs> yeah they're all from the stations um and so you've become pretty involved in that particularly with like marble bar ball and races tell me a bit about what, it, what it's been like to get involved with that community not just from the pastoralism side but on the social side and, and what you notice about the social aspect of that community yeah, I mean, I've gotten to meet amazing people up here. I've been so incredibly lucky who I've been introduced to and and get to call my friends these days, um, you know, obviously through that initial contact with Annabelle, you know, you got to meet Annabelle, you got to meet Annabelle. Um, you know, she's a really interesting person and she knows a lot of other really interesting, strong, accomplished women and men Um you know, so that's, I mean, that's been a really amazing thing and, and something that I will cherish forever. And yeah, through that, I've gotten involved in the community and different events and things. So, I mean, the Marble Bar Ball is one of the big ones that I've been organizing. I think I've done five of them now. Um, and it was kind of like, hey, I just need a bit of help. <laughs> and And then next minute I'm organizing the whole thing. But I mean, I love it. I think organizing events is really fun. I think Marble Bar, I mean, probably all the little towns in the Pilbara and Kimberley have the same feel as Marble Bar does to me. Maybe, I don't know, but I just think it's such a special little town. I mean, Thomas Fox, the publican at the Ironclad, is an absolute character. Um, You know, it's just got a great feel to it. The races are only once a year. You know, it's a big event. and, And the ball is such a nice opportunity for people to dress up. Like you don't, you know, the ringers out on the stations don't often get that chance to to get frocked up and do something a bit nicer. So it's really cool to put it on. And I mean, I was out at the mustering camp um, at Yarry. I did two weeks out there just before the Marble Bar Ball a couple of years ago. And I'll always remember, we literally, 
sitting perched up on the top of this one rock near camp because it's the only spot where you could get one bar of reception. And we're like, you know, they're trying to order their dresses online. And it's, you know, it's just, it's just a lot of fun to be able to, to, you know, to do something for the community, to put that event on. Um, and ever since I've been involved with organising it, we've raised money for charity as well. So the event doesn't make a lot of money and we do generally have sponsors, but we will try and um, donate money from the ticket sales and have a silent auction or a raffle or something. And I think we've probably raised about 20 grand over the last five years, including two years ago when we raised 10 grand for Dolly's Dream, which was, you know, it was really special to be able to, to do that and to see the community come and support something like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I love doing that and I've helped both in my professional role and before I even worked for KPCA, I'd I'd help Annabelle organize the Livestock Handling Cup, which is a low stress stockmanship event that uh, you've promoted on Central Station. Yeah. We had the episode with Boyd Holden who developed a Livestock Handling Cup with Annabelle three or four years ago. Yep. Maybe a few more years. Yeah. So, um... I mean, I, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these, a lot of the pastors, they, they, they're out mustering. They're not sitting at computers. Um, I work, I get to go out and visit a lot. And I think I've done, I did 80,000 K in my time with KPCA. So on the road a lot, but also at the computer a lot. So, I mean, it's, it's an easy thing for me to be able to help organize, you know, and it's, it's just a great way to be connected to that community. And I mean, I'd, oh, which one would I choose? Probably the Livestock Handling Cup is my favourite event in the Pilbara, to be honest. Yeah. It's just got such a great feel to it. And it's got, um, there's such great motives behind it, like why it was set up and what they want to achieve. Um, you know, showing that the industry is so committed to, you know, best practice animal handling, to this low stress stockmanship, but also to their to the welfare of their staff. You know, it's not just, it's about the staff and it's about the animals and it's, and it's about the community and just showing what a great community is. And, um, for anyone who hasn't been along to that event, I just cannot encourage you enough to get to it. I think, you know, everyone's busy and there's a lot of events on and there's rodeos and things that might seem like more fun, but once you've gone to that livestock handling cup event, like you, you, it kind of clicks. I think you just kind of get it. Like everyone we might call it a competition, but that's not so not what it's about. It's about people coming together, learning from each other and celebrating. And it just I always come home with the warm and fuzzies after that one. I think it energizes you from, from when I've attended, you just get inspired and it kind of re like, cause especially throughout the year and it's long days, hard work, whatnot, you know, maybe something will happen. But, and you know, something that makes you go, oh, what's going on? And then you come to this event and just everyone is there because they want to do better. They want to be better. They want to yeah. keep learning. They're happy to rock up and go, you know what? Like, yeah, I'm pretty confident with my livestock handling skills, but I'm, I'm here to learn whatever new you've got mm. to teach me, you know, stuff that, you know, we didn't, you know, then the industry is constantly evolving and learning more and, and developing more and everybody's rocks up there and like, we just, we're here because we want to be better. Yeah. You know, we know that we've... Doesn't matter how good we are, we can always be better. Even and the learn um, more. yeah, even the experts, you know, people like Boyd will say, you know, don't just listen to me, and I don't just listen to myself. Like it's it's about getting exposed to all the different techniques and and looking out and seeing how people are doing things differently, and just taking what you can from each of these people, you know. And and it, I mean, it's amazing. Last year, the one at Sandfire, I mean, the guys who won were backpackers. They'd been out at Norena Downs. Well, they didn't win, but they had the highest um, animal handling score. You know, they weren't, they were definitely not the most experienced. I mean, they were, they'd been doing it for a, a couple of months, but they just had, you know, the right attitude. And, and so it's, it's, it's not necessarily about, you know, being the best or having, have, have done it the longest, but um, just kind of taking bits off different people and um, just continually improving. Problem solving skills, like getting build, getting that toolkit and knowing when to use what what when to take that certain tool out of the toolbox and use it in what situation, and, and yeah. having that 
it's not just having this one skill and this one approach to handling all the situations you're going to be with livestock. You've got that whole toolbox and you use your different tools yeah. at different times. Yeah. And a bit of personal reflection, you know, like myself and my, my husband, he's, we're very yin and yang, you know, like I've got to realize I have a big presence. <laughs> my flight yes, zone is huge. So like for me to get a, you know, an animal to move, I, I need to tone myself down. <laughs> So stop running for the hills. And he's the exact opposite. He's very quiet and soft. And so he needs to kind of potentially bring his energy up, whereas I need to bring my energy down. So, I mean, there's just so much involved with it. But, yeah, it's a great event and you should get along if you can. If you're a ringer, hassle your boss. If you're the boss, well, come on. <laughs> get amongst Bring it. your crew along. It really it's it's a great event. And hopefully, you know, it started off as the Pilbara Livestock Handling Cup and now it's the KPC Livestock Handling Cup and it was in the Kimberley. Eventually, it would be great if you have one in the Pilbara, one in the Kimberley. We can have some regional finals. Yeah, and then have them in Sandfire. Have all different regions in Australia do it. Have state finals, national final. Yeah. I know somebody in Wyoming contacted um, us through Central Station wanting to know more about it. Yeah, we've they've been contacts made from all over the world about it. A global cup. Yep. Just, just saying. Um, so if you're listening to this and you're in any other state and you want to get your own competition going, like definitely get in touch with KPCA to learn about how they're formatting the event and because you know the more consistency and and if we can have it like yeah. that, that would be amazing and let's get yeah, it going it in your so, area. It would be so great to see it taken up in you know the NT or Queensland or anywhere across Australia. Yeah. And I'm sure there are similar things, but to be honest, we have, we haven't heard of. No, there, as far as I know, there is nothing. nothing. No. So. Come on, a challenge to Queensland and NT. (laughs) Come on. (laughs) Pick up your game, guys. I've taken up a fair bit of your time this morning and made this poor, heavily pregnant. Yeah, well, I'm just, I'm I'm just playing the waiting game. So. Yeah. (laughs) I've got a bit of time on my hands. You're literally within the last week. Um, and you look like you're day. about to pop <laughs> and I have made you sit on the floor so we can record this. Thank you so much. So I'm not going to keep you on the floor for too much longer. Although favorite, she is sitting on numerous pillows. Yes. Um, I like to ask some, um, people that I interview, I, I guess as we've developed the podcast, I'm kind of figuring out different things and I'd like to start asking the same questions more regularly, um, and hearing the same asking the same questions to different people and kind of being able to compare the answers. So one that I um, have picked up from the Shameless podcast, if anybody hasn't mm-hmm. listened to that, it's a lot of fun, is um, what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Gosh, well, I mean, I am heavily pregnant, so there's been a fair bit of maternity reading, <laughs> prenatal reading, postnatal reading. I'm sure the listeners are not interested in that. Um, one book that has actually stood out for me though, um, is a book by Ryan Holiday. And I, I've heard about this guy from a podcast. Um, and it's a book called Stillness is the Key. And it's, he's this kind of guy and he looks at all, all the old uh, philosophers and, and, um, all these crazy people I've never heard about really, but very intelligent philosophers, um, and Zen masters and stuff, and and he kind of has these modern lessons for modern life. And as as we were saying before, I'm not necessarily a still low stress kind of person. So I found it a really interesting book, just about you know taking a moment and and being in the present and calming your mind. Um, I mean, in this incredibly busy world that we live in, and I mean. I've got about one-tenth of the busyness of a pastoralist. Their heads are whirling constantly. Um, I think just remembering to kind of take those breaks and take those pauses and, you know, recognise how precious the world is and and the opportunities that we have um, is really important. So, yeah, Stillness is the Key by Ryan Holiday might be some good... Some good reading for our very busy partialists over this yeah. hopefully very wet season. Yes. We're all Fingers crossed. Stuck in the house because we can't <laughs> drive anywhere. Um, what about watching or listening? Are there any podcasts that you've been listening to? Obviously, aside from ours, and you've clearly caught up on Obviously, all the episodes. Obviously, Central Station. 
Um, I listened to my husband and I bought a bought a farm over east. Um, going to put my money where my mouth is over the next couple of years and and try and do this whole regenerative farming smaller scale. I have, as I said, a lot of respect for pastors. I think they're amazing. I don't think I could do what they do. It's just such a big scale. So I think farming is maybe the place for me. Um, so I listened to a few kind of like grass-fed life podcasts. There's a working cows one. Um, and then don't judge me, but there's this guy called Rich Roll who I just think he's really annoying. But he interviews some really interesting people. Now, if you go and look him up, guys, he is – I think he's a vegan or at least a vegetarian. Just – ignore all of those ones sometimes i listen to them because i feel like you should be educated on both sides of the debate definitely no i highly agree with that but they're wrong Um, (laughs) (laughs) that is your perspective i'm just gonna jump in i'm pretty sure none of the listeners are vegetarians (laughs) but anyway like steph knows i eat very healthy i i'm all about healthy food production and everything but anyway no he interviews really amazing people he's he is um he's an ultra runner i think his book was called finding ultra that's how he became famous um but he was also a lawyer and an alcoholic and he has this whole redemption story and he interviews just really interesting people whether they're endurance athletes like the first guy to solo walk across the arctic or something and um this amazing dude called david goggins if you don't know david goggins look him up he's like a dude like ex-navy seal and texas ranger and um but yeah he just interviews really interesting people and he does long podcasts like two three hours sometimes and when you drive up here 30 minute podcasts are so annoying yeah you have to keep finding new ones um so yeah the rich roll podcast he's like southern californian hippie which I'm not necessarily against, but I'd say some of the listeners I love this might you kind are... of like turn him on and be like, what the hell? But just look at who he's interviewing and pick the ones that you think sound really interesting. Because he also does meditation, if you're into that. And he has like a guru, which I just potentially you're, you're not like... into, but there are some there are some good ones in there. He was like Southern Californian hippie pip. You are like Byron Bay hippie. <laughs> hey, I'm not. I'm Pilbara Pip. I'm faking it till I make it. No, Byron Bay hippie guys. That's exactly. (laughs) And what about um, my heart out? (laughs) What about watching any? um, Obviously, aside from Cole's video that you recommend, anything that you recommend that people watch, or are you binging on anything on Netflix at the moment? Oh God, don't! You're just making all the shame come out of me, (laughs) Steph. What is it? Are you watching Yummy Mummy? What am I watching? No, I did start watching Suits actually because I wanted to know what everyone was talking about there. Oh, with Meghan Markle. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's getting a bit old. Is that any good? Um, it yeah, yeah. The first few seasons are, but I mean, when you binge, it all just gets really repetitive, yeah. doesn't it? One thing, I actually, we should go back to the reading because there are some really, really good books around. Yes, that is that, what I was going to um, ask is recommendations. I've kind of got all the books. I think a lot of people have got all the books these days, but I mean, probably my favorite one was Call of the Reed Warbler. If people are interested in that kind of regenerative agriculture space, um, a lot of it is farming, but there is also pastoral scale stuff in there. Um, Alan Savory and his holistic management is in the book. Peter Andrews and his kind of natural sequence farming. And this book, Call of the Reed Warbler, is is, um, written by Charles Massey. Yeah, Charles Massey. It's been – most people probably would have heard of it by now. It's gotten a fair bit of hype. But it is – you have to be in that space, though, because I didn't really until I did the – RCS grazing for profit course. Yeah, I hadn't heard of him or that book. Yeah, well, it's a really – it's kind of like speed dating – for the regenerative space. So it's got... Oh, you know, it's Daddy. It is a massive book. <laughs> no, but it's it just like... Big. It's got... He he um, promotes and talks about heaps of different people across Australia and the world. So whether you're a grain farmer oh, or okay. whether you're, a, you know, a broadacre farmer or a dairy farmer or you're running a pastoral business or, like I said, you know, he features Alan Savory who's... who's you know desert arid environments in south africa he he introduces you to a range of different people and a range of different um techniques and styles of regeneration and you know you can just take 
what's relevant to you and and read up more you know if you really like the Alan Savory stuff he obviously has his own book holistic management if you like the Peter Andrews section of his book Peter Andrews has his own book um back from the brink and beyond the brink um yeah a lot of the guys in there feature in their own works too so it's just a really um a really good start to understanding that space and I think it's a well-written book and I enjoyed it there's a little bit of kind of philosophy um at the start and the end which I was like oh hang on (laughs) isn't this like a farming book what are we talking about the mechanical mind for but it was it really puts into context that a lot of the times well all the time the number one thing that actually needs to change is in your head you know like if you want to change how you're running your farm you actually need to change how you think about it first before you go and put in those physical changes so yeah wet season reading call of the reed warbot by charles massey i know highly recommend i need to get it but i just i think i got so overwhelmed by the size of the book it's not even that big it is like a it's big it's a big book i just got overwhelmed (laughs) and i was like oh i'll just do that one day <laughs> it's worth the read it's worth the read. yeah no definitely sure. and i know at least i've seen it in a couple of houses of pastoralists and i've been there and oh I was, yeah yeah and I've i was just so excited and i was like oh my god you've like yeah, yeah had some good discussions about it with people yeah it's good to see it getting out there yeah um okay last question um a little bit more generic what is the best piece of advice you've ever received mm. i guess it's a double-barreled question and what is one piece of advice you'd give to anybody listening? Just a, Don't know. listen to anything I say. <laughs> <laughs> Steph, I'm very unqualified for these kind of questions. Um, look, I, I couldn't tell you the best piece of advice I've been given, but something that pops into my head would have to just, would have to be, you know, just be yourself. Like it's amazing how far you can get um, by just being true to who you are. And it's amazing where life can take you. Um, So, yeah, you know, I think we started this story and I was telling you how intimidated I was by driving, you know, like literally just driving out someone's driveway. Um, But, you know, you just kind of be yourself and opportunities can can open for you. So, yeah, just go along for the ride. That's really great advice. Thank you, Pip. Thanks. Thanks. Wasn't that bad, was it? I don't know. (laughs) Ask the listeners, probably. (laughs) Sorry, everyone. Anybody who got something out of it? Anybody? But it wasn't that scary, right? So if you're listening and... I am bright red and sweating. We did have to turn off the air conditioning and it is like 40 degrees in Port Hedland today. No, but- the sweat is from the stress. <laughs> I'm glad you don't do the, the YouTube-y podcast. I know. I've seen that on the um, on the Trademark podcast. They How do, do they that. The- and they, rec- they video people as they record them. And I'm yeah, like, no. I would have to... A, could not on. look like this. <laughs> we have got some faces for radio today, that is for sure. Uh, we do. Right. Thanks, Pip. There are currently over 1,100 compelling true stories on centralstation.net.au, which will open your eyes to what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. There are yarns from station managers, ringers, cooks, govies, pilots, vets, and more told with humour, self-deprecation and pride in a job well done. There are tales of working in stock camps, mustering cattle and how education and socialisation works in some of the most remote parts of Australia. There's stories about the wonder of living in an amazing landscape, but also the perils that come with flood, fire and drought. And there's stories about the inherent danger of living in isolation, including times when the flying doctor has come to the rescue. These stories paint a vivid picture of outback life, the good, the bad, and the dusty.